Thanks, Mark. My name's Jack. I'm a drunk, not a fighter. Hi, folks. I, uh, I really appreciate being asked to come down here. Today. I want to thank the committee and thank Mark and his uh, sweet woman, Joanne, there. We, uh, we enjoyed, enjoyed their company and a nice meal. My wife uh, came with me here. We're married 45 years, and uh, so we've both been married to somebody for 45 years who would normally not mix. <laughs> and uh, and we had fun in the car on the way down here. In spite of that, we uh, we have an interesting uh, relationship. We uh, we'll take time out from enjoying scenery and things and, and argue. <laughs> And then we'll stop. We get distracted by something. You know, my wife will be busy telling me how big of an idiot I am and say, oh, Jack, look at that over there. You know, <laughs> I'm the same way. And uh, she gave me her watch because I forgot my, she says I have some timers or something. I don't know. But uh, it seems to have a fast forward on it or something. You're uh, moving right along. Uh, I, I'm going to say what they, you know, what they asked me to do up there. They told me to come up here and talk about my alcoholism. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, and when I do that, there's going to be people out there that uh, that will probably identify with me. And that's good. I love that. I love it. If I if I could help somebody out there, you know, I just love that because uh, I'm not very charitable when others stop. You know, and if I could help somebody, that's great. But the only thing is about that, two things. You never know if you help somebody in AA. You can't tell. Because, uh, and I know, I, I went to people and I, I love them so much. They've done, they've done so much for me for what they said that I want to get all over them. You know, and make a pain in the ass out of myself. You know, <laughs> I follow them around and say, geez, you helped me. And they say, all right already. You know, pass it on. You know. <laughs> I remember one time there was a group from Ohio that used to come up Cook's Forest all the time and I'd run into them and and when I'd, I'd get around, sometimes I'd talk down around Youngstown or something once in a while. They'd forget uh, what I sounded like when they'd ask me to come down there. And these guys looked, looked forward to getting, because we used to bust each other's stones, and it was a fun thing. And so this little gang of guys, they they come out to this place I was talking at in Youngstown. And when I was uh, done talking, this one guy in that batch that uh, I'd sort of taken a liking to, you know, and he'd come up to me and he shook shook my hands real hard, you know, with both hands, you know, that handshake, the really mean it type handshake. There's tears coming down his eyes. So when I had a chance later on, I asked his buddies that run with him all the time, I said, what happened to Jim? I mean, he he was like really emotional, you know. I, I said, what do you mean? I said, well, when he shook my hand with real hard, and then there's the tears coming down his eyes. He said, yeah, the tears. He's had something in his eye all day long, you know. <laughs> So if they'd have let that out, I thought I helped the guy, you know. <laughs> but I'm mostly up here to help myself, and uh, and I've been doing this for a while, and it seems to work. I have to do this. It's, uh, at the risk of uh, sounding vulgar or something, I'd say that for me, this is sort of like a spiritual enema. You know? <laughs> now that is disgusting, you know what I mean? Now I know that, you know, I know. But I'm a plumber, what do you expect? You know? <laughs> Plumbers gotta get sober too, you know. And uh, so I tell this story of mine. The thing that I started to mention was that if you really identify with me, chances are you're a marginal psychotic. <laughs> and uh we make it too, you know. 
if we just do what they say. And, you know, so. so I'm going to go on with this story. It's always the same story. My wife and I were talking about, we run into the tapers with the Kobe all the time. We've become good friends with them over the years. And, uh, and I just feel sorry for them. they got to listen to the same thing, you know, all the time. But imagine how many times I look out to listen to me. You know, I listen to me every time I talk, you know. And the only saving grace to that is sometimes something new comes up in my in my mind about myself. You know, I come back, after you get done talking to me sometimes, I don't know if it's happened to you, but you think, you know, I didn't know I thought that. <laughs> you know? And and it's important that I guess you get to know yourself, you know. And uh, everybody has different opinions of what they hear up here at the podium, I'm sure, you know. I mean, one guy says, you have a tremendous talk. It's too bad you don't have anything to say. <laughs> you know, to each his own. But uh, I guess a lot of us come in here with a thin skin, and it's, you know, it's almost got to get over that. You know, or, you're, or the, the thing's going to be pretty, pretty, pretty tough. But I was 18 or 19 years old sitting in a bar, drunk and reflected on why my life was ruined already at 19, you know, just wrecked. And uh, and I come up with all these reasons that I lived with for the 14 years or so that I, was, I drank. And uh, what they were was that uh, I had a rotten home life. You know, we didn't even have dysfunctional families back then. But I had something wrong there. I knew it. And uh, my... My mother worked, uh, she had a job on a railroad, and she was never home. It seemed like all the other mothers and the kids in my neighborhood were always at home, baking pies for their little boys and rubbing their heads, you know. Nobody ever rubbed my head. That's probably why my hair fell out. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, and, and they just seemed to have uh, a model life or something. I don't know. My perspective was all shot and skewed, so I don't know what I've seen, but it seems like I've seen something that I didn't have. And uh, I had uh, I had a father that was a professional bridegroom. He's married five times. He had one kid, me, and he quit having kids. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly how I looked at it, you know, over the years. And uh, and he sort of disassociated himself with me all them years. You know, I'd have little brushes with him, but it never always seemed to peter out or something. And, uh, and of course, I called him stone drunk, you know, and he'd spend the first 15 minutes asking, who, who on the phone? You know how you get when you got a mouth full of marbles or whatever the hell happens to you when you're drunk, you know. I'd say, this is your son! You know, and uh, everybody in the bar would turn around, I guess, afraid that maybe I was their son, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was always a bad scene because I never reached out, you know. Like, in the 50s, we didn't share. We just, there were so many great movements that went on in this country since I was a little brand new budding rock and roller that that uh, we didn't we got by without somehow I don't know uh, we had uh, we didn't have traumatic moments we didn't have a lot of things you know and uh, we didn't have this point in time we didn't even have that I come out in the seventies tricky dicky give us that you know and of course since I have no opinion on outside issues for fear of being thrown out of AA I don't go on and on about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my opinions are usually washed through uh, my wife's little filter at home. You know, 
she'll tell me when I'm when I'm taking some side tracks that probably aren't in my best interest. I can see now, you know, the eyebrow, first the eyebrows or something, and then the don't do that looking. All right. So I had a grandmother raise me. You know, I had a grandmother. I'm sure she loved me. I loved her too. And uh, she was the damnedest woman you ever seen. She just we used to play on the street when I was a kid. You know, all the boys were out in the street, and we just kicked cans and we jumped over top of each other and we. We set garages on fire. And we tormented little girls and we tortured cats. That's what we all did. And uh, and while we were busy doing this, my grandmother would come out on the street. She weighed about 300 pounds and she'd waddle out on the street and get right up in, in our faces and, uh, and, and tell us stuff and give us advice and give us criticism and then she'd blow her nose on her apron and go back in the house. <laughs> and all them kids would laugh at me, and, they, and they'd laugh at my grandmother, and I had mixed emotions. I hated them for, for, uh, for being so, you know, condescending with my grandmother, and I hated my grandmother for coming out there embarrassing me, and I became self-conscious. I don't know if it was self-centered. It was already self-centered, I guess. Like, you know, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, they talk about in a big book that our biggest problem is selfishness and self-centeredness. And I'm positive that's right. That is, that's the holy for me. I believe that. But there's not much in there, I don't think. I never see anything in there about self-consciousness because I think you can be, you're not self-conscious and still have all the other problems you contribute to alcohol. But anybody self-conscious, they know what, they know what I'm talking about. Like, for instance, my wife doesn't seem to be self-conscious. And I've been married to her, like I say, a long time. Let me give you an illustration. Now, I, I'm sober a good while now, and, and I don't go through stop signs anymore. Much. You know. <laughs> but uh, I have reasons for not, for not uh, running a stop sign. You know, if you ask me, what about these stop signs, Jack? And I say, well, I try not to run them because I don't want to cop the stop. Most of all, I don't want to hit somebody. I don't want to hit some little munchkin out there, you know. Geez, uh, I couldn't, I don't think I could live with that. You know, I'd have to, but I mean, I, to drag that into my soul to have to do some damage like that would be a terrible thing, especially somebody who's sober and should know better than do stupid things. So I, that's why I don't want to do that. So I want to stop because I want to look and make sure there's no munchkins out there. Now, there's other reasons is I don't want to wreck a nice car. I got a nice car finally, you know. And, uh, and I don't want it all messed up, you know. I didn't be waiting on it to get it out of the shop, you know. I don't want to do that. And it's embarrassing. What happened to your car, Jack? You know, well, I wrecked it, you know. Well, why? Because I went through a stop sign, you know. And, you know, and, oh, yeah, how long are you sober? You know, oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, 30 years. Oh. Really sober, huh? Yeah, yeah. So I don't want that. I certainly don't want that to happen. But I still have reasons for stopping. Now, if you ask my wife, who is not self-conscious, she said, do you stop at stop signs? My little wife over there would say, well, yes, I do. Why? <laughs> and you say, well, I just thought maybe you had some reasons. Well, I do have one reason. What's that? Because you're supposed to. <laughs> That's a simple life. They tell us to come in here and get a simple life. We'll be all right. You know, we're going on how like keep it simple. You know. <laughs> must be a complicated formula for keeping it simple. 
Well, why just don't go, don't, you're supposed to. I never done anything in my entire life because I was supposed to, ever. I mean, I've done things that look like I've done them because they were supposed to, but I just, uh, just worked out like that. You know, a clock that's broke is right twice a day, and that's the way I dealt with that, you know. But you had to have a good reason for me to do anything, especially something I didn't want to do. Now, you could tell me anything at all to make me do something I wanted to do. If I wanted to do it, yeah, you're right. Why? Yeah, give me that again, you know, and I'd go do it because I was always taking care of number one. But uh, I had a I had a stepfather finally when I was eight or nine years old. My mother remarried. Drug this guy into my life, and he was across between Archie Bunker and Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and, and he was not not bad for me, you know. And uh, and I suffered under his regime. And uh, I mean, he used to do things. I, I don't know if you had a, a dad like this or not, but I mean, one time, I'm going to tell a chicken story. Everybody likes to hear this. He'd come home with a bunch of chicken, and uh, a big box full of chicken. And it like six of them in there or something, you know, live chicken. And I live in a city, you know, and I hardly ever seen a chicken, you know. And he brings them home, and he says, i got to kill these chickens. And I said, I, I, I like chickens. I don't want to kill them. He said, no, no, you're going to kill the chickens because we're going to eat the chickens and you have to kill them. So I said, I don't know how to kill chickens. I'll show you how to kill So he takes me down the cellar and he, he gets a board and he drives two nails in it. And he stretches the chicken's head through them nails and he chops the head off. Now he's got man hands. And I mean, you notice real man's hands with like square fingers, you ever notice that? Man, and he got a hole in my, oh, that's stepfather, he was like a cement block with hair on it, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> and he's holding that chicken, and it's just, you know, like this, move a little bit. See that, boy? You know, yes, sir, you know, he sticks it in the box, and holds it there for a few seconds, stays in the box, and he goes to bed. He's drunk, he goes upstairs and goes to sleep. Now I got these chickens to deal with. Now I'm having this, Dramatic moment. <laughs> and I'm pacing the solar, you know, and I'm going, I don't want to do this, you know, and oh my God, you know, and I have to do it, you know. So I get one of the chickens out of there, you know, and it's bop, bop, you know, and it's beady eye looking up at me. <laughs> and I don't, I, oh, I'm just, I'm just disheartened. And I, and I put that thing in the between those nails, you know, and I, and I'm, Sobbing and everything, you know, and I cut the damn head off, you know, with this hatchet. And that damn thing, you never seen nothing like it. I don't know if you ever kill a chicken. But all their life, they go like this, that's it. When you cut their head off, they become an eagle. <laughs> it's gone. It seems like it's hovering over my head. That's the most disgusting. I'm telling you, there's yeah, blood and stink. It's just, oh. I've been a plumber, man, all my life, and I, I can't tell you a more disgusting story than that chicken. And I got these little boy hands, you know. You can't hang on to damn thing, you know. Little, little cute little boy hands, and it's, it's gone. It's all over me. But the next chicken now, 
I got a, I got an attitude change. <laughs> I pulled the next chicken out of that box, and now I got that hatchet, and I don't care which end of the hatchet I use on that sunburn. <laughs> I just whacked that head off, and I throwed him in the box. Then I had this like a thought. What's the matter with me? What happened to me? What am I, apprentice, serial killer, or what? <laughs> and where's this, where's this attitude? I, where's this thing that's come over me? Where's that gonna go? I mean, what's gonna come of this crap? I mean, I realized at that moment that, that I was a piece of work. You know? And I don't think, you know, I didn't think anybody else would know what I knew. Like, this was dangerous to feel like this. This was something that could get away from me. And I, and I felt responsible, and I also felt able to control, even though I didn't know what direction to put these reins in, I felt like I was in control of my motley little life. You know, I was just a little kid, but I thought, you know what, I can do anything I want to do. And it just scared the hell out of me. And, uh, you know, if, if I mentioned that to somebody else, if I mentioned it to an adult, you know, go to the teacher and said, I had this feeling about myself that I can do anything I want to do. And they, I knew what they would say. They'd say, oh, that's nice. That's good you feel that way. You know, because you'll go on to get a good job and blah, blah, blah. No, that's not why I'm saying that. I'm, I'm saying that there's a guy in here that could say, I like that girl over there. <laughs> you know. Or that damn bank's all full of money over here, you know? And hell is just sitting there. So I got a, I got a guy here that I have to deal with, and I started a part of my life where I needed some kind of medicine. I needed some, some kind of control over this thing that was like rumbling around inside me. There was a, there was a happening going on here. And I had to get something to put a lid on that, Son of a gun before it just got crazy. Because I already had some little brushes with police and stuff like that, and I knew their capacity. You know, if I should get worse than I was, that they're liable to be scraping me off a wall somewhere, you know. So I didn't want to get hurt, and I and I had this to deal with. So I I was bad in school, I and mean, I did lousy in school. Just you know, I, I once in a while I do all right, just just it happened, and they know that I was. It was a discipline problem and not a not mental retardation. So they treat you accordingly. They're just mean to you. <laughs> and I ended up in a vocational high school. So that's where they put guys that work under your sink and moon you. <laughs> and that's where we learn that stuff. So down in vocational school, we didn't have any racial problems down there. In those days, everybody hated everybody else equally. Everybody. It was a blanket hatred that went down real good. And you weren't allowed to cry about getting hurt because, I mean, they just, everybody just, just was rotten to each other. And I had one buddy, I got one friend in the print shop, and he made me brand new report cards. And so I had a little thing going with my stepfather. I was able to furnish the kind of grades that would keep me from getting my ass whipped. <laughs> so one particular day, I was 15 years old, and I got an exceptionally bad report card. And I'm so grateful to be able to tell this that I get asked to talk way out of town like this. Because I'm a plumber, and I, and I don't want to say I got bad grades in plumbing shops. <laughs> 
near my house, you know. <laughs> but since then, I've rocketed uh, above that, you know, and went on to be just absolutely great at my job, you know. Besides, my grandson's doing all the work now. Anyhow, I can hardly screw anything up now. And uh, But uh, anyhow, what the hell was I talking about? <laughs> I got sidetracked there. I just lost uh, anyhow, the kid, uh, the kid didn't have a report card. So I, I tried to fix this bad report card. You know, we didn't have whiteout even in that. This is a long time ago. This is 1954, I guess. We didn't have whiteout. So I didn't, I don't know what the hell I tried to get them grades off of there with, but anyhow, the report card was like totally ruined. It was, it was folded, spindled, and mutilated. I don't know if you remember when that was going around, you know. I think that was even before that was going around. They weren't using computers on stuff. But uh, anyhow, I brought it home, and I was waiting for him to come home from work. I didn't tell my mom enough, and my mother knew something was going down, you know, uh, because I was a wreck. And back, I'm pacing again, you know, and it's just like with the chickens. I'm going back and forth. And, uh, and uh, I'm waiting for I figured, you know, I already done something else. I left this favorite paintbrush get hard or something. So I knew that this time, this was a capital offense. I knew it. I didn't know how he was going to kill me. I just knew he was, and, and I was hoping it would be short and sweet. You know. But I found slow gin in the icebox, and I drank it. And I'm here to tell you. I didn't find an answer to all this crap I've been whining and crying about here for 15, 20 minutes. I found the answer. There wasn't nothing in this world any better than that feeling I got from that. Nothing. I mean, when that booze went down, it wasn't, well, I'd like to social drink. I'd like to have to drink with somebody. That's bullshit. <laughs> this was the elector of God himself to come into me. And not only did I not have any of that crap I've been whining about here, all went away. That's just for starters. But the second phase of that stuff kicked in. I thought maybe, just maybe, I could kick that stepfather's ass. <laughs> and the very thought, that very thought was worth its weight in gold. <laughs> Incidentally, I was wrong about that. <laughs> so, I found my answer and I determined uh, after that that I was going to drink this stuff as much and as often as I could. One thought that come to me that I was absolutely right about from the start was as soon as I drank that and it felt so good, I knew that they didn't want me to drink. I knew they, the, the same they that didn't want you to eat ice cream, wanted you to eat asparagus instead, those idiots. The people, you know, in school... You know, I wanted to, they're telling me in school when I was a little kid, the, the capitals of all the states and everything, I wanted to know if patent leather shoes really reflected up. That's all I wanted to know. And I didn't want none of the crap that, that everybody was giving me. I didn't believe them. You know, there ain't nothing worse than a, a, a 12-year-old, 9-year-old cynic. You know, it's just an awful thing. You know, I don't know who it was who wrote. There's not, the only thing worse than a, than a, than a young, uh, pessimist is an old optimist, you know. <laughs> and I've managed to hit on both. Here I am now, I'm an old optimist. God damn it, I can't hit nothing right. But, 
I mean, I tell you that this is the only place I think you can get away with that in AA is being an old, an old uh, optimist because it is always fun here. You know, even if we come in here where all our legs are gimpy and hind end hurts and you got this stump here and you got all kinds of stuff you got to plug into or you might not make it. You know, and you got, you got all pills and everything and you're still looking at them new girls. How about that? Hey, <laughs> hey, I'm better. See, so anyhow, I found that stuff and I started using it, and I just kept using it until I got here. You know, I had a lot of incidents along the way. I had cars and problems. I used to have my cars that, oh, they were just junk. You know, the windshield ever don't work on my side, and the tires are all different sizes, and they got bubbles on them and stuff. You know. <laughs> I had them damn wilderness firestone tires probably before they come out, you know. <laughs> we, I couldn't believe if somebody would worry about stuff like that, you know. Usually the cars, when I was young and drunk, you know, the, the cars wouldn't go that fast to roll over. You know, by the time you get up to 48 miles or 47.3, you start going like this, you know. <laughs> and so... You know, I guess everybody has a different set of problems, you know. With all that and drinking and fighting, I, my wife, this girl here, she she did not want me to act like this. Just, she just was unreasonable about the whole thing. And I'd come, you know, I'd come home after one of these safaris I'd go on and uh, it just seemed like she'd be waiting for me and, and there was some kind of mechanical device between her mouth and the doorknob as I get up on a porch, she'd start, and it seemed like that was also wired into the neighbors, where their lights would come on in their house, you know, and they'd lean out there and look out the window and ask what the hell's going on. Sometimes I'd tell them, you know. Sometimes I'd stand out in the middle of the street and I'd deliver great oratory to them. And I was so far, far advanced intellectually with those steel workers up there that I just ramrodded them, you know. And then when my wife would get trying to, on a campaign to fix me, she'd drag clergy into the house to talk with me. And I used to have this, this, this need, this quest for getting over what was wrong with me. Whatever the hell it was, I was fighting it. And I read all the self-improvement books I could find. Every one of them. I remember I was reading Maxwell Maltz's Psycho-Cybernetic and, and the last book I remember reading along that line was, I'm okay, you're not okay. <laughs> and uh, on, in all those books, they'd have like little astros down the bottom, and there'd be other more wacky stuff you could get into from some other great author or philosophic genius from the past. Now, guys, you've heard other speakers talk about their relationships with Nietzsche and all these other screwballs. Can't. And won't. And I, my, the more contemporary heroes of mine were like Eric Fromm and, uh, and, uh, Escape from Freedom. That's a hell of a title. Jump in that and get it all, you know. And, uh, just, I just, oh, I was just indonated with all this crap. And when I wasn't busy reading that, I was busy wetting my pants and wrecking my car. You know? <laughs> 
and I just couldn't get I couldn't get any momentum in my revolution. You know. I wanted to run off to California out to Esplin or whatever it was out there and there was some Fritz Pearls or some jackass out there that, that I wanted to meet and I wanted to meet that screwball doctor out there that uh, later on I found out I tried to get Bill Wilson on LSD. Boy, he's a peach. <laughs> but all them people, I can't, you know what, it's a God thing I can't remember that guy's name. It's probably protecting me from his family suing me, you know. <laughs> But anyhow, he was he was a great wonder of the 60s. And I always headed for California. Clancy's so lucky that I never got out there. <laughs> I couldn't get out there. I had friends, you know, a lot of guys from Pittsburgh that were real hip. You know, when they were too hip from Pittsburgh, they weren't hip enough, rather. They, they would run them out to California and get them real hip. You know, because, I mean, they did everything first out in California. And then they'd drag it to Pittsburgh and... We were like a committee out there trying to make a horse, and we ended up with a camel-looking thing, you know. So, uh, but that, but anyhow, that's I wanted to go there, and I wanted to go down Miami Beach too, you know, get down there in the warm. And every January, I'd be off of coming off a of drunk, and I'd be tramping around in snow this beach. My feet are wet, snot's running down my nose. My car started, you know, I'm out of gas or something, and that usually don't happen. You know, somebody said your battery dead. No, I ran out of gas. Well. Only alcoholic does that, you know. Has a different problem than anybody expects. And and I was just full of this crap, and I never had any money, you know. I just I, all I did was work, and I and I play pinball machines and throw my money away. Play the same blues tune on a jukebox 150 times and wonder why some somebody can there punch me. And and my life was just cluttered with all this crap. And and I you know, I I just I didn't know what to do. And the clergy wasn't helping me. I ended up seeing a psychiatrist. He told me I was a latent something or other. I wanted to kill him. And uh I mean I knew this about myself. I knew that, you know, I'd make love to a fishbowl if the water was warm when I was when I was completely screwed up, you know. So what the hell would I know about my choice? Or I didn't have no choice. I was a basket case animal out there. You know, just, I was better, people were better off when I was just drunk and they wouldn't leave me be. They'd try to wake me up and get me started again, you know. And my wife was the only one that had good judgment about that. He's unconscious. Let him be. And sometimes she practiced beating me when I was unconscious. She, she might talk to you about that tomorrow. A lot of things happened to me when I wasn't anywhere, when I was just out, you know. Just, and uh, and I wondered what these things were. I remember colossal things happening to me. I mean, not colossal, but to me they were colossal. Like tripping over, remember these all these beer cases in my way to get to a urinal one time. I didn't know why they stacked them in this, in the men's room, at this bar. And I went through all these beer cases trying to find a bottle with some beer left in it, you know, while I was in there. And I'm just throwing the bottles and everything. I got bottles and everything. Our cases are all open in there and I'm blocking the urinal. And then I try to use the urinal and I fell in there. And then they, they come and help me, you know, they come, look at this guy. What's he dead? You know, stuff like that. And I was so embarrassed and, uh, they'd say it's only Jack. I know, I know that guy, you know. 
And I, oh God, I know I couldn't live like this. I couldn't, I was so arrogant anyhow. I didn't need all this extra added humiliation every moment of my life. Well, what I did, I was doing all this crap I'm talking about. I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what will happen to you if you keep acting like that and drinking and can't get a hold of yourself and can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps like you should. <laughs> I like to pull the bootstraps around their necks if people would tell me stuff like that. I ended up here. I came in here January 1969. I had my last drink April 18, 1970, which was out for about 15 months. In my home group, they used to call me Jack the Slipper. <laughs> and I resented him saying that because, because I was trying. I was not drinking as fast as I could, you know. And I would have these setbacks. You know, and every time I'd have a, I'd get drunk and I'd come back to AA and they'd tell me, you don't have the first step. How, how condescending can you be? You don't have the first step. I had the first step. That's what made me drunk. And when you tell that to an old-timer in the age, it just goes, oh, yeah. have a coffee. Come over here, sit down. Shut up. <laughs> sit there and I'm sober, ain't I? Well, you're not drinking tonight, it seems, but uh, we'll get into that sober later, you know. But I would just sit there and brood and seize, and, and, I, and I had the answer because they say that... Uh, that we're powerless over alcohol and our lives are unmanageable. If you get that, supposedly if you get that, that we're, uh, your life's unmanageable, you're powerless over alcohol, that you've got the first step. And that's a start, a beautiful, fresh start. Not for me, because if I'm powerless over alcohol, how can I not drink? I just go around saying, well, I'm powerless over alcohol. Oh, there it comes. You know? Because I'm going to drink because it's going to get bad enough for me to drink. Even if it ain't bad enough now, it will get that way. Especially if on top of the life situations that make it hard for me not to drink anyhow, or just, they just keep rolling in like the tide. You know, or in the good times too. You know, something good's liable to happen. You know, you hit a number or some damn thing. You almost get a drink when you hit a number. Ah, oh, you had a good thing happen. You, I shouldn't drink now, right? <laughs> I drank when my wife beat me with a dust mop. A lot of people can sympathize and understand that, but they won't understand me hitting a number. If you hit a number, then you should come home with the money and take the family out for dinner and blah, 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 and buy a new couch or something for her. One that's not all wet, you know? <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't get any satisfaction out, out of nothing like everybody else seemed to have. Everybody, everybody else, them. They just knew what to do and their kids were all happy to see them come home. And, and it's just that I, I couldn't live. I didn't have a life like that. And I was rock and roll, you know. I was cool. I had a convertible, you know, and I got the top stuck in a, in a <laughs> half mask thing. I hated the people that used to, when they go out in the convertible, do you ever see them? They put their top down, and then they ceremoniously go around and put that boot on. Every little clip, they push that clip down, and they polish it, maybe. You know, I pull out. I'm burning rubber while the top's going down. <laughs> if, I ain't, 
you know, I got the radio going. You know, it's a good thing I was in those days because them radios these kids got today, I'd have been in jail for sure. I love to turn that radio up where it knocks the wax right out of your ears. And the top down. And the muffler dragging with sparks flying away to the So anyhow, I'm in this AA now and they're torturing me. And everybody always likes to celebrate the old timers. You can hardly go to a meeting without somebody at the podium saying the wonderful old timers. Well, you know, I've been looking back and the old timers were guys that I idolized. The old timers that helped me, and I noticed people doing this, were the guys that are old timers now. You know? They weren't old timers then. They were sober two years, three years. And now I look at them and I think of them as my old timers. You know, the old timers, I, I ended up being around the old timers and I ended up going and bitching about something that they done in general service or something, you know. But the guys that saved my, my bacon were the guys like there's probably plenty of you out there. You're sober a year, maybe nine months. I'm going to tell you sort of a, a situation deal that used to go on with me. When I was slipping and sliding, it was almost time for me to get better. Guys would come to the meeting and, and they'd sort of like hover around. There'd be about four or five of them. And they were all sober a year, nine months or so. One of them had a car. And they'd get up in your face and say, we go to a meeting every night. You want to do anything about all this slipping and sliding you're doing? You'll go with us and we'll pick you up. Well, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm busy and this and that. They said, well, then they told me what to do for myself. And uh, and I'd say, well, wait a minute. Now, you know, I, I want to get sober. I'd say, well, come on, let's go. And then I'd go out to the car to get in with them. And I went to get in the front seat beside the driver. And the driver said, no, 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 no. You get in the back with the junk guys back there. You're not sitting up front. I'd say, God, don't make any junk, you know. <laughs> they said, that God made an exception, obviously, for you. And there's other junk guys back there. But you're not sitting in the front. I sit in the front because it's my car and my pigeon who's sober nine months. He sits up here with me and you sit in the back. That's the way it is. So we'd all get in there, you know. I said, I don't want to sit back. I tell him, I remember one guy won a TV set at the AA club. He was sober the same amount of time as me. And I had a bad TV and my wife wouldn't go into bed with me. And I thought, if I get a good TV, I can get her back to the bedroom, you know. And just like God was trying to trick me to tease me, he let this other guy win this color TV down the club, you know. And I didn't like him. I mean, hell, what did you do, you know? And so I didn't like him, so he's in that car, and the guy said, go sit back there with Bill. I said, I don't like you. He said, he don't like you neither. <laughs> and I pondered, why wouldn't he like me? He won the damn TV, you know. That kept me busy for one night or something. Think about that. But I got in the car and we went to meetings. The car was absolutely full of smoke. The people were talking in that car. It was just the craziest conversation you ever heard in your life. And it would go round and round in the car. And the one guy would say something like, you know what, George, and George was the boss. He was the guru, the one with the years to ride in. His car, he's the man. And he'd say, he wanna, George, I want to tell you something. So what? And meanwhile, George is cohort there, shotgun rider, he turns around because he wants to hear every word of George because he just thinks the world of George. So anyhow, you watch him hovering there. 
And this guy said, well, what's up? Charlie says, well, you know, uh, I don't think, and you know how I feel about it. A man can't stay sober without his woman. I mean, if you love a woman and, 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 and he's going on, you know, and he's going up to make you cry. And, and he said, and, and she left me. I can't stay, stay sober without Marge. Another guy would leap up in the car and he'd say, how about taking Susan? I'm going to get drunk and let Vic stay there. <laughs> Everybody else in the car, all the other people in the car would laugh. Everybody's laughing except the two offended guys. And these same type of stories would go round and round in that car. Every time we went to a meeting, we'd go to a meeting every night in there, and those stories would go around, and every once in a while, one would fall off the emotional bandwagon and have some kind of crisis with his kid or his job or his wife or his house, and he would bring it up in that car, and everybody in that car would just literally bust his stones until everybody else was was hysteric with laughter except the offended one and because that changed every night who was offended and who wasn't it got to be goofy you just you couldn't see where your part to laugh was and you would like catch yourself and meanwhile you can't let go of nothing because you're too new and they're telling you to let go and you don't know what to let go of you're bouncing all these balls up in the air trying to not laugh at your good buddy but laugh at this other SOB that you didn't like because he won that TV. <laughs> it was just too much to control all this. Just too much because everybody you're contending with has no axe to grind like they're all damn sober. They ain't drinking, so you can't work that scam. They don't care whether what you say. If you say, I want out of the car, they ain't going to beg you to say it. If you stop it, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. You know that because they're AAs, man. Them AAs are bad. I mean, they're bad. And so you don't play with them. And, and so we got, and you know what? I was needing that second step to get sober. And you know, I wasn't sitting in some quiet chapel with the sun streaming through the stained glass window when God come to me. I was sitting on a toilet waiting for Charlie to come get me and take my sorry ass to a meeting, you know? And I thought about getting in that car with them guys that I wanted in there. I actually wanted in that car with them. I loved them with their one tooth here and their and their big bellies and their dirty t-shirts and bad breath. I wanted to be with them guys because I loved them guys. I just loved them. And and I knew that they loved me. They loved me the same way. And I was excited about getting in there with them. And so we went. We went to meetings way on the other side of town where it wasn't convenient. We'd go there because one guy in that car wanted to see so-and-so. And he wanted to see so-and-so because he loved so-and-so. And so-and-so's daughter or something was sick or, or going to school. And he wanted to congratulate him on something. Tell him, tell him something. You know. And I wanted what they had. And I wanted, finally wanted what those guys had that we went to those odd meetings to talk to. Guys that were still over 25 years and financially didn't have a damn thing. But they were nice guys, and they the thing that they had, which used to blow my mind, they remembered that Jim didn't have a job yet. How could they remember something like that? Guy, we'd walk in there with a bunch of us, and, he, and the old-timer would say, Hey, Jim, did you get that job? They'd say, Yeah, I did get it. 
who talked to you on that? He said, well, some guy by the name of George Sosa. He said, I thought so, because I was telling Harry that you were interested in a job, you know, uh, running a machine, a lathe or something. I mentioned to him about that. Uh, he he wanted to talk to you, yeah. And they just had that network going in there. But they actually thought about other people. And this was like a regular thing. They just always thought about other people. So they were doing it way different than the way I ever did it. And it was dawning on me that I wanted to do it the way they did it. And when that moment comes to me, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Somebody else knows what it is. I don't know what it is. But I wanted to turn my will and my life over the care of whatever it was. And I'm here to testify to you tonight that I know that if you do that, you'll get it in there wherever it goes. You know? It goes to the right spot if you do that. You know? You don't have to send it through Buddha. You don't have to send it through Jesus. You just send it out there. Give it this. Under your leg. Make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of whatever it is. And we don't care what you think it is. If you think it's something, then good. You know, we'll say it. Joe thinks it's this. <laughs> Big deal. And life is just going boom. It's running right through you. If you don't jump, I heard a speaker talk one time. It says he felt like what life was like getting in a cab. And when you come in here and you do the thing here, it's just like the flag is up, man. And your life is rolling on there. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to drive down the river and drown yourself? You know, just when that thing, let's go. Get this cab going to a good place. Let's go to see uh, uh, my daughter graduate, my granddaughter graduate from high school. Let's go see that. Let's go to a play. Take Mama down to see this. Do that. Get that grandson out there working with me. Get him in a truck with me. And send him on his own. Other plumbers told me that. I said, God, this boy makes mistakes much around my life. They said, turn him loose. Let him go out there. I said, what if he breaks something like that? Go fix it then, if he breaks it. <laughs> it's merciless Alcoholics Anonymous member. You can't tell him, well, you're not a plumber. You want to stand because they'll drag a plumber over. Come here. Come here. <laughs> Somebody be a lawyer. Say, if he screws something out, you can't fix it, you get sued. See, Harry. <laughs> so they started working for me I ended up taking my own inventory taking the whole work taking a fifth step I wanted to take it with somebody old and sick and pray they die so that nobody would ever know the rotten crap I'd done but you know what the rotten crap I'd done ain't no worse than most rotten crap and that's what I finally come to grips with and I went out and did that and I didn't do it with an old guy who was in the bed but I ended up taking it with somebody. It made sense to me. And uh, got that over with. I fretted and worried about the difference between a character defect and a shortcoming for a couple of years. In the meantime, I was cleaning enough coffee pots and emptying ashtrays that it didn't get me drunk during that period. But uh, my family started to be important to me. And uh, my AA stayed important to me. Lots of good things start happening to me. My wife and I started to get, you know, we sit next to each other and I'm so grateful. When I got sober in my early 30s in this program. I had, you know, 10 or 15 years of my wife and I just, we just, 
and, and I love her, you know, and she had, she had the health problems like that. And that was, you know, it's it tough sometimes, you know, but it's better if you're doing them together, you know. And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't tell Alcoholics Anonymous how grateful, I just, there's no words for me to tell what, what this has meant to me coming in here and this thing doing to me. I can't tell you. I mean, if you knew me, really knew me, I mean, I'm just a bum from, from, uh, from the east end of the city of Pittsburgh. You know, that's where we see people, the cops see people for speeding and shit, you know. <laughs> Sorry, officer. I mean, it's a city, it's a, and, it, and it's a tough city, and there's a lot of good people in Pittsburgh, and there's a lot of crazy people there, and there's a lot of alcoholics, there's a lot of sober alcoholics. But that's where I come from, and I come from in front of the pinball machine. I come from the drunken bar down there, drinking on Sundays at some Slovak club, you know, where you gotta just smell like a Slovak to get in. You don't have to be one. An Irishman, pretty much the same smell, you know. And, and they put jumbo out on a table on Sundays, you know, and flies would hover over it and look at it and wouldn't like it and would leave, you know. But that's, that's where I was at. And I was down at Beneficial Finance Company, my higher power, begging for money so I could, so I could get in the house, you know, because I spent three or four pays in a row. My wife wasn't talking to me. And, uh, come from that to coming out to a nice thing like this, to being able to come out here with my wife and leave. I got a nice home. I can leave my home and I got a good family. I got two great daughters. Great granddaughter, I'm not great granddaughter, great granddaughter. <laughs> and I got this grandson who I say he's been a friend of fun with me for three years. He'd be taking over my business, and I just love him so much. I just love him. I love this chance that I got to spend time with him. God, I'm so glad that I'm so glad that I participated in what we do here. We do things to get better. And on the way, we just have a good time, you know. We just have a good time. Do all the dancing you can, you know. When you're young, get out to the dance. I heard somebody else say that today. I didn't come up to it. Go to the dance. Go to the dance. I don't know if you're going to have to go to the slow dance. You want to slow dance? Slow dance. <laughs> Talk to your sponsor before you do anything really crazy, you know. <laughs> And you'll know it's crazy if you're just feeling real excited about it. <laughs> Every time you say to yourself, boy, I got a wonderful idea. Go tell it to your sponsors. See what comes of it. <laughs> the most disheartening thing when he says, you know what? I had the same idea. I did the same thing. You wouldn't believe it. I damn near got divorced. I lost my car. <laughs> you know. Go ahead. You know, maybe it's easier now. <laughs> This is in the old days. This is in the 90s. <laughs> Thanks for bringing me here. I love you.